How can I know God is real? What does the Bible say about politics? Why does a good God allow suffering? If you have questions about faith, life or culture, don't be afraid to ask. This This is Ask with David Dean. G'day everyone, Dave Dean here. And our question for the week is, how do Christians respond to the charge the Bible is full of contradictions? Critics of Christianity often charge that the Bible cannot be trusted as a reliable source of information, historical or otherwise, because it contains many contradictions. In the words of best-selling author and New Testament textual critic Bart Ehrman, the Bible is filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions, end quote. Now, personally, I've seen online reports from less than reputable sources charging that the Bible contains as much as 40,000 contradictions from cover to cover. And look, I don't even know how one would begin to count something like that. But anyway, let's take a more moderate by comparison analysis. There was a graphic published in 2010 by Project Reason and commissioned by outspoken atheist Sam Harris, which purports to visualize 439 contradictions across the chapters of the Bible, leading one publisher of this graphic to conclude, quote, to anyone who thinks that the Bible is the last word on anything, remember this, it isn't even the last word on itself, end quote. So what are we to make of all of this? Because if Ehrman is right, and the Bible is indeed filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions, then it does put Christians in a difficult position insofar as we consider the Bible to be the authoritative word of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, this is one of those subjects that is imbued with many assumptions. So in response to this question, how do Christians respond to the charge the Bible is full of contradictions? I want to suggest that there are at least three different elements we need to keep in mind. First, let's get clear about contradictions. Charles Dickens begins his classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, with this impressive paragraph. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of fulliness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. Now, we might be inclined to sit back and say, well, Mr. Dickens, which is it? The best of times or the worst of times? The age of wisdom, the age of foolishness? Being good textual critics, we could shut the book and charge A Tale of Two Cities as being, quote, filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions. Because, after all, that is what a contradiction is. Two mutually exclusive claims about something, someone, or some occurrence that cannot be reconciled. But we don't tend to do that with Dickens, do we? Because with a little work, we come to see from the context of that opening paragraph there in A Tale of Two Cities that Dickens is clearly using oppositional language to make a particular point about conflict. This is good literature, not formal contradiction. Dickens is getting our attention from the opening line and drawing us in as readers to the moment of his message. His words invite us to read more, to dig deeper, to think harder about what it is that he is saying. You see, there is a significant difference between an apparent contradiction and a formal contradiction. An apparent contradiction is just that, apparent, appearing as though. It is not a formal contradiction per se, but rather a paradox. And paradoxes are effectively used by authors all the time to create this reader tension that draws us into what the message is to give us a greater depth and breadth and appreciation of their meaning. By contrast, a formal contradiction, this mutually exclusive claim or claims which cannot be reconciled, they don't attract intrigue. They tend to repel in suspicion about the coherence and trustworthiness and reliability of the account in question. 
Well, all of that to say, like Dickens, the writers of the Bible sometimes use language to draw us into the meaning and significance of their message. So still here under this first element, let's get clear about contradictions. I'm just going to give three different ways that we see this in the Bible, three different kinds of what I would call paradoxes that people like Sam Harris and other critics have charged as formal contradictions. First, apparent contradictions or paradoxes come in the form of author omissions. Take the words of Jesus as an example. Most New Testament scholars recognize that we don't have the precise words of Jesus in the Gospels, what theologians call in Latin epitsima verba. Rather, what's recorded by the Gospel writers is the very voice of Jesus, epitsima vox. That is the, the gist, the summary significance of Jesus' teachings recorded for us in the Gospels. Now, on the level of language, this seems obvious enough, as Jesus would have likely spoken in Aramaic, and we have English translations of Greek autographs. But he also explains why we find different writers sometimes omitting and abbreviating different elements from their accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Take, for example, the story of the centurion's servant. In Luke's telling of the story, the centurion sends Jewish elders to speak with Jesus, Luke 7, 1-10. But Matthew omits that detail and reports it as though the centurion himself went to Jesus to speak directly with him, Matthew 8, 5-13. Now, in those days, there wasn't any real functional difference between a centurion and their emissary, so the historical context acquits the charge of formal contradiction here. But think about this in a modern context for a moment. We're getting some new floorboards installed in our living room, and the builder had to take a sample piece of our existing floor, because we're going to try and match it, into the timber mill to, to find exactly what type it was. The builder then came back to our house, he handed me the quote from the timber mill to check over it, and if I was happy, he said, can you please make the call and order the timber? Well, when I rang up the timber mill, I said something like this. I said, hi mate, I recently got a quote for some floorboards, and I'd like to place an order with the following order number. Now, I omitted the detail of the middleman, of the builder, who sourced the quote himself, but it's not a lie or a contradiction for me to say that I did, in fact, get a quote for the floorboards. That's just a straightforward example of omission, and we do it all the time in modern communication. A second example of apparent contradictions or paradoxes can be seen in the form of author interpretations. Again, when we consider that the Gospels are written in Greek and the fact that Jesus likely spoke Aramaic, the very art and science of translation at that point involves interpretation on part of the author, as languages don't necessarily have equivalent word-for-word or phrase-for-phrase matches across one another. So right away, we could account for some minor discrepancies uh, by virtue of the fact that these writers were often translating their accounts of Jesus' words. But more than that, the biblical authors, writing in most cases after the events had taken place, often include points of theological significance, and they do that for particular reasons depending on their intended audience. Take the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as an example. Luke records Jesus as saying, Blessed are you who are poor, Luke 6.20. Whereas Matthew records Jesus as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. Now, of course, it is possible that Jesus said both statements and Luke and Matthew wrote down the difference. But I think it seems entirely reasonable that what we have here is just an example of different emphases given by the respective authors for their respective readers. And they don't contradict one another in a formal sense. They complement one another to give a complete account of what it was that Jesus did actually teach. I mean, for one thing, Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount is much briefer than Matthew's, so there's naturally going to be differences there. But for another, it seems likely that his emphasis on the materiality or the financial aspect of being poor was to meet his readers where they are at. And for Matthew's part, 
his account, it, do, it doesn't exclude the materiality or the financially poor. That would be a contradiction, by the way. What it does do, though, is emphasize the spiritual dimension of Jesus' words. You see, we do not need to think of them as deceptions on part of the author, but rather as different emphases, different perspectives that give a more complete understanding of what it was that was actually said by Jesus. A third example of apparent contradictions or paradoxes can be seen in the form of an author's organization. Consider the example of Jesus cleansing the temple, which is often cited as a contradiction. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleansed the temple during the final week leading up to his crucifixion. But according to John, Jesus cleansed the temple early on in his ministry. Now, again, on on face value, I get it, this is tough. It looks like a contradiction. But if we dig a little deeper and think a little harder, it is entirely possible, as some have argued, that Jesus simply cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his three-year ministry and once towards the end. Personally, however, I think it's more likely that here again we have an example of a Bible author, in this case John, reorganizing his testimony to draw out a particular point of theological significance. And to make that case, you just need to read around in the surrounding context and do a cross-comparison between the accounts. In the cleansing accounts we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all make reference to Jesus saying that his house, the temple, is a house of prayer for all people, that is, Jews and Gentiles, which harkens back to something written in the Old Testament by the prophet Isaiah. John doesn't record that in his account. Instead, what he does is he connects the temple cleansing to Psalm 69, which is a prophetic picture of Jesus' death. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, is one such verse we find there. And just to be clear, uh, willingness to accept difference of chronology in this kind of way, it's not an exercise of incredulity. In the first century generation after the time of the New Testament, we have writings from a guy named uh, Papias who tells us he accurately wrote down what the Apostle Peter had said, what we basically have recorded in the Gospel of Mark. But he tells us that he didn't write it down in chronological order. That's significant. He says he accurately recorded, but he did not do so in a chronological order. Ancient writers, they simply weren't concerned or necessarily beholden to the convention of chronology like you and I are today. Rather, they used devices like presentation and structure, organization, to get their message across to the readers. So that would be a first element that I think we need to consider. Let's get clear about contradictions because oftentimes what's charged as a contradiction or a formal contradiction turns out to be no contradiction at all. A second element is let's get real about witness testimony. Imagine, for argument's sake, that you were called up for jury duty to render judgment over an alleged assault, and the defendant calls up two eyewitnesses to back them up, and one by one, these eyewitnesses give their account, and they are exactly the same word for word, verbatim. Now, eyewitness testimony, it is compelling legal testimony, but rarely, if ever, do two or more eyewitness accounts recall events exactly the same, because people are susceptible to their own individual first-hand perspectives. Memories are susceptible to a variety of different biases and backgrounds and conditions. So hearing two eyewitness testimonies that are exactly the same, it creates suspicion in a legal context. It makes us question whether there is truly independence here because in all likelihood there's been collusion or coinciding of the stories. The point is where apparent contradictions or paradoxes draw us in to dig deeper and think harder about independent testimonies, exact same accounts like formal contradictions, they tend to repel us with suspicion to the degree that the witnesses seem to have colluded with one another. So that's a a second element to consider. Let's get real about witness testimony. 
And I might just add here that I think this point is significant when it comes to the Bible in particular, because remember, the Bible is not a single book. It is a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors in three languages on three continents across some 1,500 years. And while it arguably presents a a basic unifying message about our relationship to God, each other, and the world around us, this unity is not done in a uniform way. Because we have 66 books, they contain all sorts of different voices from different times, locations, perspectives, languages, and cultures, and so on. But any lack of uniformity across the pages of Scripture, it does not necessarily deny, again, this basic unity of the biblical story as it concerns our relationship to God, each other, and the world around us. So, We aren't left to throw up our hands in the air and shrug our sceptical shoulders because it is still possible to know the unity of the biblical message despite any lack of uniformity in its various voices. A third and final element is let's get specific about case examples. When I hear someone say a sweeping generalization like, the Bible is filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions, I like to ask, what is the strongest example of a Bible contradiction? Now, the reason I ask for the strongest example is because oftentimes when somebody rebuts an apparent Bible contradiction, there is a tendency for critics to jump to the next and then to the next and then to the next, bombarding believers with quantity, if not quality, of alleged contradictions. But by asking for the strongest, we can avoid that tendency because if you can answer the strongest one satisfactorily, then it puts all the others in their place. Now, I'm not suggesting this one is the strongest example of a contradiction, but to give just another short example. Critics like Sam Harris have charged that there is uh, a contradiction between Matthew's account of an angel at the tomb following Jesus' resurrection, Matthew 28.5, and John's account, which makes explicit mention of two angels, John 20.12. Clearly, one is not two and two is not one, so it would seem that we have a problem. But again, digging a little deeper and thinking a little harder, we see that both accounts are situated in the same place at the same time with the same characters. And Matthew never says that there was only one angel. Simply, his account references an angel that spoke with Mary. So look, these are not contradictory accounts. They are complementary because the further information in John's account, it does not exclude the information we already have in Matthew's. It gives us readers more of a complete perspective of the events as they took place. And again, that we do this all the time today just goes to show the double standards that some critics can have. You know, if you and I were out at a party or something, and if I said to you, last Tuesday night, I tried these new burgers at this new place in town. But then later on, you heard me telling somebody else across the room that last Tuesday night, I went on a date with my wife. It would be overly hasty to suppose that I'm contradicting myself. I'm simply giving more information about what happened last Tuesday night. And if you know me at all, you know that it's quite likely that I would have taken my wife out to a burger place for a date. So, look, to bring all of this together, there are at least three different elements that I think are helpful to keep in mind when thinking about how to respond to the charge that the Bible is full of contradictions. First, let's get clear about contradictions. Second, let's get real about witness testimony. And third, let's get specific about case examples. And look, briefly, let me just be real with you, the listener. In saying everything I've said, I want you to know that there are still passages that I find quite difficult to reconcile. There are even passages of incidental commentary which I think in all likelihood contain scribal errors in the translations we have today. Nevertheless, I remain a Bible-believing Christian because my faith does not rest on the proverbial straw of a minor peripheral discrepancy that would break the camel's back of the grand unifying message of the biblical story about our relationship to God, each other, and the world around us. We can be sure of that message And any questions I yet have remain as invitations to dig deeper and think harder about what it is the author is trying to convey. 
So no matter who you are or where you come from, I encourage you to join with me and see the text of Scripture as an invitation to dig deeper and think harder. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Do you have a question about Christian beliefs, theology, doctrine, philosophy or culture? Don't be afraid to ask. Go to drcdean.com forward slash ask. That's Dean with an E.